Chapter Twenty One of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Twenty One. Stephen and Neville Kiard returned from Clemson to Algiers, hoping for news of Victoria, but there was none, and after two days they left for Grand Kabylia. The prophetic birds at Mansourah had flown in a southeasterly direction, but when Stephen and Neville started in search of Josette's maid, Mooney, they turned full east, their faces looking towards the dark heights of Kabylia. It was not Victoria they hoped to find there, however, or Sadie her sister, but only a hint as to their next move. Nevertheless, Neville was superstitious about the birds, and said to Stephen when the car had run them out of Algiers, past Maison Carré, into open country, Isn't it queer how the birds follow us? I never saw so many before. They're always with us. It's just as if they'd passed on the word, the way chupatties are passed on in India, eh? Or maybe Josette has told her protégés to look after us. And Stephen smiled, for Neville's superstitions were engaging rather than repulsive, and his quaintness was endearing him more and more to the man who had just taken up the dropped thread of friendship after eight or nine years. What an odd fellow Neville was! Stephen thought indulgently. No wonder he was worshipped by his servants and even his chauffeur. No wonder Lady MacGregor adored her nephew, though treating him as if he were a little boy. One of Neville's idiosyncrasies, after arranging everything to fit a certain plan, was to rush off at the last minute and do something entirely different. Last night, the night before starting for Grand Kabylia, he had begged Stephen to be ready by eight, at which time the car was ordered. At nine, having sat up till three o'clock writing letters, and then having visited a lately imported gazelle in its quarters, Neville was still in his bath. At length he arrived on the scene, beaming, with a sulky chameleon in his pocket, and flew about giving last directions until he suddenly discovered that there was a violent hurry, whereupon he began to be boyishly peevish with the chauffeur for not getting off an hour ago. No sooner had the car started, however, than he fell into a serious mood, telling Stephen of the many things which he had thought out in the night, things which might be helpful in finding Victoria. He had been lying awake, it seemed, brooding on this subject, and it had occurred to him that, if Mooney should prove a disappointment, they might later discover something really useful by going to the annual ball at the governor's palace. This festivity had been put off on account of illness in the chief official's family, but it would take place in a fortnight or so now. All the great Agas and Saeeds of the South would be there, and as Neville knew many of them, he might be able to get definite information concerning Ben-Halim. As for Sadie, 
to hear of ben halim was to hear of her and then it was in the midst of describing the ball and the important men who would attend that neville suddenly broke off to be superstitious about birds it was true that the birds were everywhere little greenish birds flitting among the trees larger grey-brown birds flying low fairy-like blue and yellow birds that circled round the car as it ran eastward towards the far looming mountains of the Dijajura, larks that spouted music like a fountain of jewels as they soared into the quivering blue and great stately storks sitting in their nests on tall trees or tops of poles silhouetted against the sky as they gazed indifferently down at the automobile josette would tell us it's splendid luck to see storks on their nests said neville arabs think they bring good fortune to places that's why people cut off the tops of the trees and make nests for them so they can bless the neighborhood and do good to the crops storks have no such menial work here as bringing babies arab babies have to come as best they can sent into the world anyhow for storks are men who didn't do their religious duties in the most approved style so they have to revisit the world next time in the form of beneficent birds but neville did not want to answer questions about storks and their habits he had tired of them in a moment and was passionately interested in mules there ought to be an epic written about mules of north africa he exclaimed i tell you it's a great subject look at those poor brave chaps struggling to pull carts piled up with casks of beastly algerian wine through the sea of mud which probably goes all the way through to china aren't they splendid wait till you've been in this country as long as i have and you'll respect mules as i do from army mules down to the lowest dregs of the mule kingdom i don't ask you to love them and neither do they but how they work here in africa and never a groan they go on till they drop and i don't believe half of them ever get anything to eat some day i'm going to start a rest farm for tired mules i shall pay well for them a man i know did write a paean of praise for mules i believe i'll have it translated into arabic and handed about as a leaflet these natives are good to their horses because they believe they have souls but they treat their mules like the dirt under their feet and neville began quoting here and there a verse or a line he remembered of the mule music chanting in time to the throbbing of the motor key a minor measure common one and two and three and four and every hoof-beat half a second every hoof-beat linked with heart-beat every heart-beat nearer bursting andantino sostenuto in the downpour or the dryness hottest summer coldest winter sick and sore and old and feeble hourly hourly daily daily from the sunrise to the setting from the setting to the sunrise scarce a break in all the circle for the rough and scanty eating for the scant and muddy drinking for the fitful fearful resting for the master haunted sleeping dreams in dark of god's far heaven tempo primo tempo sempre 
and so through pools of wild flowers and the blood of poppies their road led to wild mountain scenery then into the embrace of the digidura mountains themselves evil snow-splashed sterile-seeming mountains until the car had passed the fortified town of tizi uzu an overgrown village whose name stephen thought like a drunken term of endearment it was a market day there and the long street was so full of cabiles dressed apparently in low-necked woolen bags of soldiers in uniform of bold-eyed scantily clad children and of the dyed sheep and goats that the car had to pass at a walk neville brought a good deal of cabile jewelry necklaces and long earrings or boxes enamelled in crude greens and reds blues and yellows not that he had already more than he knew what to do with but he could not resist the handsome unveiled girls the wretched old women or pretty half-naked children who offered the work of the neighbouring hill villages or family heirlooms sometimes he saw eyes which made him think of josette's but then all beautiful things that he saw reminded him of her she was an obsession but for a wonder he had taken stephen's advice in clemson and had not proposed again he was still marvelling at his own strength of mind and asking himself if after all he had been wise after tizu uzu the mountains were no longer sterile seeming the road coiled up and up snakily between rows of leering cactus and far below the densely wooded heights lay lovely plains through which a great river wandered there was a homely smell of mint and the country did not look to stephen like the africa he had imagined all the hill slopes were green with the bright green of fig trees and almonds even at heights so great that the car wallowed among clouds this steep road was the road to fort national the thorn in the eye of the kabylia which pierces so deeply that the kabylia may writhe but revolt no more already it was almost as if the car had brought them into another world the men who occasionally emerged from the woolly white blankets of the clouds were men of a very different type from the mild cabiles of the plains they had met trooping along towards algiers in search of work these were brave upstanding men worthy of their fathers who revolted against french rule and could not be conquered until that thorn fort national was planted deeply in the heart and eye some were fair and even red-haired which would have surprised stephen if he had not heard from neville that in old days the christian slaves used to escape from algiers and seek refuge in kabylia where they were treated as free men and no questions were asked without fort national it seemed to stephen that this strange berber people would never have been forced to yield for looking down from the mountain heights as the motor sped on it was as if he looked into a vast and intricate maze of valleys and on each curiously pointed peak clung a cabile village that seemed to be inlaid in the rock like separate bits of scarlet enamel it was the low house roofs 
which gave this effect for unlike the arabs whom the ancient berber lords of the soil regard with scorn the kabyles built their dwellings of stone roofed with red tiles this was a wild tormented world broken into a hundred sharp mountain ridges which seemed to cut the sky because between the high peaks and the tangled skeins of faraway villages surged foaming seas of cloud which appeared to separate high bright peaks from shadowed vales by incredible distances as far as the eye could travel with utmost straining awaited the dark imposing background of the Dijajura range billowed ridges and ravines ravines and ridges each pointing pinnacle or razor shelf adorned with its coral red hamlet like a group of poisonous fungi or the barnacles on a ship's steep side such an extraordinary landscape stephen had never imagined or seen except on a japanese fan and it struck him that the scene actually did resemble quaint prints picturing half-real half-imaginary scenes in old japan what a country for war what a country for defence he said to himself as neville's yellow car sped along the levels of narrow ridges that gave on either hand vertical views far down to fertile valleys rushed into clouds of weeping rain or out into regions of sunlight and rainbows it was three o'clock when they reached michelet but they had not stopped for luncheon as both were in haste to find mooney and mooney's village was just beyond michelet since fort national they had been in the heart of grand kabylia and michelet was even more characteristic of this strange mountain country so different from transplanted arabia below not an arab lived here in the long straggling town built on the crest of a high ridge not a minaret tower pointed skyward the kabyle place of worship had a roof of a little more height or importance than those that clustered round it the men were in striped brown ganduras of camel hair the lovely unveiled women were wrapped in woollen futahs dyed red or yellow blue or purple and from their little ears heavy rings dangled the blue tattoo marks on their brown cheeks and foreheads which in forgotten times had been christian crosses gave great value to their enormous coal-encircled eyes and their teeth were very white as they smiled boldly yet proudly at stephen and neville there was a flight of steps to mount from the car to the hotel and as the two men climbed the stairs they turned to look across a profound chasm to the immense mass of the Dijajura opposite the michelet's thin ledge from their point of view it was like the Humfra, as stephen had seen it from murin on one of the, his few trips to switzerland somehow those little conventional potterings of his seemed pitiable now they had been so easy to do so exactly what other people did it was long past ordinary luncheon time and hunger constrained the two men to eat before starting out to find the village where mooney and her people lived 
It was so small a hamlet that Neville, who knew Kabylia well, had never heard of it until Josette Sobeys wrote the name for him on one of her own cards. The landlord of the hotel at Michelet gave rapid and fluent directions how to go, saying that the distance was two miles, but as the way was a steep mountain path, les messieurs must go on foot. Immediately after lunching they started, armed with a present for the bride, a watch encrusted with tiny brilliance, which, following Josette's advice, they had chosen as one thing of all others calculated to win the Kabyle girl's heart. It will be like a fairy dream to her to have a watch of her own, Josette had said. Her friends will be dying of envy, and she will enjoy that. Oh, she will search her soul and tell you everything she knows, if you but give her a watch. For a little way the friends walked along the wild and beautiful road, which from Michelet plunged down the mountains towards Bouguet and the sea. But soon they came to the narrow, ill-defined footpath described by the landlord. It led straight up a steep shoulder of rock, which at its highest part became a ledge. And when they had climbed to the top, at a distance they could see a cluster of red roofs apparently falling down a precipice at the far end. Here and there were patches of snow, white as fallen lily petals on the pansy-colored earth. Looking down was like looking from a high wave upon a vast sea of other waves, each wave carrying on its apex a few bits of broken red mosaic, which were cabile roofs, and the pale sky was streaked with ragged violet clouds, exactly like the sky and clouds painted on screens by Japanese artists. They met not a soul as they walked, but while the village was still far away and unreal, the bark of guns, fired quickly one after the other, jarred their ears, and the mountain wind brought a crying of riatas, African clarinets, and the dull yet fierce beat of tom-toms. Now I know why we've met no one, said Neville. The wedding feast's still on, and everybody who is anybody at Yakuya is there. You know, if you're an Arab, or even a Kabyle, it takes you a week to be married properly, and you have high jinks every day, music and dancing and eating, and if you've money enough, above all, you make the powder speak. Mooney's people are doing her well. What a good thing we've got the watch. Even with Josette's introduction, we mightn't have been able to come near the bride, unless we had something to offer worth her having. The mountain village of Yakua had no suburbs, no outlying houses. The one-story mud huts with their pointed red roofs, utterly unlike Arab dwellings, were huddled together with only enough distance between for a man and a mule or a donkey to pass. The best stood in pairs, with a walled yard between, and as Stephen and Neville searched anxiously for some one to point out the home of Mooney, from over a wall which seemed to be running down the mountainside came a white puff of smoke and a strident bang, then more, one after the other. Again the wailing of the Raida began, 
and there was no longer any need to ask the way that's where the party is in that yard said neville beginning to be excited now what sort of reception will they give us that's the next question can't we tell the first thing that we've come from algiers with a present for the bride suggested stephen we can if they understand arabic neville answered but the kabyle lingo's quite different berber or something racy of the soil i ought to have brought mohammed to interpret so steeply did the yard between the low houses run downhill that standing at the top of the worn path like a seam in some old garment the two europeans could look over the mud wall squalid as were the mud huts and the cattle yard connecting them the picture framed in the square enclosure blazed with colour it was barbaric and beautiful in its savagery squatting on the ground with the last rank against the house wall were several rows of women all unveiled their uncovered arms jewelled to the elbows embracing their knees the afternoon sunlight shone on their ceremonial finery setting fire to the red blue and green enamel of their necklaces their huge hooped earrings and the jewelled silver chains pinned to their scarlet or yellow head wrappings struck out strange gleams from the flat round brooches which fastened their gaily striped robes on their shoulders and turned their great dark eyes into brown topazes twenty or thirty men dressed in their best burnouses draped over new gunduras their heads swathed in clean white muslin turbans sat on the opposite side of the court watching the powder play furnished by the two tall handsome boys who handled with delicate grace and skill old-fashioned long-muzzled guns inlaid with coral and silver heirlooms perhaps and of some value even to antiquaries while the powder spoke nobody had a thought of for anything else all eyes were upon the boys with the guns only travelling upward in ecstasy to watch the puffs of smoke that belched out round and white as fat snowballs then when the music burst forth again and a splendidly handsome young kabyle woman ran forward to begin the wild dance of the body and of the hands dear to the mountain men as to the nomads of the desert every one was at first absorbed in the admiration of her movements but suddenly a child one of a dozen in a row in front of all the women tired of the show less amusing to him than the powder play and looking up saw the two romias on the hill behind the wall he nudged his neighbour and the neighbour who happened to be a little girl followed with her eyes the upward nod of his head so the news went round that strangers had come uninvited to the wedding feast and men began to frown and the women to whisper while the dancer lost interest in her own tinklings and genuflections it was time for the intruders to make it known that business of some sort not idle curiosity had brought them on the scene and neville stepped forward holding out the visiting card given him by josette and the crimson velvet case containing the watch which stephen had bought in algiers 
End of chapter 21